0: Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry
1: Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Yes, it is. And it's time for another feminist fave. Our faves. I enjoy it. So much. It's a good time. This week, I'm really excited for mine. I think you're really going to find it very interesting.
2: I'm so excited. Oh, And you've already told me you're like, I didn't know about this person. So I'm like, I'm super excited. I really didn't. And I'm I'm a little surprised. All right. Well, you always find those good ones where it's like, well, we should have known, you know,
1: it's when I see anything like in anybody's Instagram story talking about somebody. That's how this one happened is somebody put it on their Instagram story and I just went and saved it immediately. To my, you know, but I don't want to forget
2: that I saved it. That's the problem. Yeah. Like sometimes I'm like, did I save something a while ago? I was looking through my notes, like feminist faves. Did I make a list at some point? And it's just, it's sometimes it's hard. It's getting harder as the years go on to it find is. these. It yeah. really is getting more difficult. So, if you have any suggestions, please let us know. Um, so today I am going to talk about someone who is not only so unbelievably famous for their work in Hollywood, but is just as famous for their work as an activist and has such an amazing story. I'm going to talk about Jane Fonda.
1: Oh, let's go. I I can't believe we've not talked about her before. That's I know. very surprising We've to me. talked about
2: her in like news episodes and stuff because it was in 2018 when we started the show that she started doing the fire drill Fridays and things like that for climate change. Um, so we probably discussed her briefly in news episodes, but never really discussed her as a person. Earlier this year, I watched her documentary, Jane in Five Parts, I think it's called, or Jane Fonda, in in five acts. That's what it is. I believe it's on HBO. If you haven't seen it and you're interested in this story, I highly recommend watching it because there's no way I can go into the amount of detail that they get into in in that documentary in this story today. But I'm going to at least give you the highlights of her life because it's truly unbelievably fascinating. So... Jane, middle name Seymour Fonda, which was named after her mother, Frances Ford Seymour, was born on December 12th, 1937. Her mother was a Canadian socialite and her father, of course, was American actor, movie star Henry Fonda. And is it No Country for Old Men that he was known for? I didn't write it down. Was his... I don't think so. Was he still alive when No Country for Old Men came out? No, probably not. <laughs> it was, from, I it no was from before. I'm horrible. I don't remember. When Jane was young, her mother's mental health declined and she was sent to a mental institution. She unfortunately took her own life in a psychiatric hospital when Jane was only 12 years old and her father lied to her about how her mother passed away and said that she died from a heart attack. But a year later, a classmate showed Jane a gossip magazine that divulged how her mother actually passed away and that's how she found out. Yeah, I'm really not... Uh, I don't know. I'm not a parent, so I guess I can't really. But like you can say that you need to be honest. Like there's a way to be honest and that's not brutal and that a child can understand and that can be sensitive. But that's something that, you know, I'm going to discuss a lot is that her father, you know, was a brilliant actor and was great at conveying his emotions on screen. But his children really talk about how he had no sense of how to display his emotions as a man well, or a that's, father. that's not
1: surprising. No, like, Emotionally of course not. distant dad from that time period. Oh, he's yeah. a World
2: War II veteran, like very yeah. like nationalistic, patriotic. Like She was very much But especially
1: if you know that there's the potential for her to find out via... You're famous. Yeah. Like, like
2: both parts of the family are so fucking famous. She's going to find out. Yeah, and
1: it's such a betrayal when... Uh, as someone who had family secrets who stumbled upon them on my own, <laughs> like it is um it is a really difficult unbel- I can't imagine yeah it's very difficult to grapple with and try and like come to terms with and things like this especially like you're also talking about mental illness mental health like a history of mental illness like you should divulge that information it's and important you can, to know and you can say if they're very young like We'll talk about it another time. Well, she was
2: 12. Oh, yeah. So, not even like, you know what what I mean? She understands. And she found this out when she was 13. And the cherry on top of this tragedy her father sent her away to boarding school after her mother died because he was like, I don't know how to deal with you. And he remarried like immediately to this like super young woman. The marriage didn't last very long. He was like, I'm not going to deal with any of these emotions. I'm not going to deal with my kids. Sent her away to a boarding school. So she wasn't even with her father when she discovered what happened to her mother. She was like off at a school, you know. It's terrible. Um, But yeah, so her brother, Peter, who was also an actor, discussed a little bit about what growing up with their father was like. He said... Growing up with my father wasn't easy. Jane and I didn't look forward to having dinner with him. It's just that he was quiet and didn't talk much and we felt like he was judging us and we didn't do much right. The dinner table was a scary place, which I want to point out, I thought that, that line was so poignant saying that the dinner table was a scary place. Because I don't talk about it a lot throughout this story, because it isn't a big storyline for her for the most part. But Jane Fonda has struggled with eating disorders since around the time that her mother passed away. She struggled with bulimia for most of her life. And something that I, you know, kind of practiced in therapy was kind of like going through what my dinner table experience was like as a child and things like that. So hearing, you know, the dinner table was a scary place and knowing her relationship to food, I think that that's really poignant that he said that. Like she didn't even say that, he said that. And I think that that does say something, at least to me, that seemed like it kind of was jumping out at me. Yeah, I
1: mean, and also the dinner table is so... I don't know I think it can carry so much for children yeah because you are in close forced proximity with adults and if you are not comfortable with those adults it can feel like you are being surveyed you're exactly. under the microscope yeah like or
2: you're just like for me it was like I just want to get I would eat so fast not finish my meal put it away it's like I just did it was uncomfortable I didn't yeah. want to be in that situation you know so to me that really jumped out she began taking interest in acting uh, through her father, obviously. He took her to a play in like 1954 or something like that. I didn't write it down. But she got really into acting. She went to Paris just to kind of like be inspired because she's a young, privileged white girl. Right, and exactly. And like, like, how nice to just be like, you know what? I need to be
1: inspired. I'm going to go take off to Paris for a couple Paris months. I'm going to go to Paris for like, six
2: months and learn about art and all this kind of stuff. And when she got back from Paris, she met the legendary acting teacher, Lee Strasberg, which Mm. Keegan and I know all about. Um, He was also... He's Marilyn Monroe's acting teacher. He was Strasberg, right? Probably. Um, I mean, absolute legend. They started the actor's studio. Big deal. So they met in 1958, and she took a class of his, and he... I guess just kind of looked at her and, and told her for the first time ever that she really had true talent and something. And she really felt like she had found her calling, you know, her first acting roles were in theater. And by the early sixties, she was averaging about two movies per year for the rest of the decade. So her career really picked up very, very fast. Yeah, A couple things. I mean, she is very Her last talented. name is Fonda. Her last name is Fonda and she's stunning. She's, I mean, she had a lot going for her. A lot going for her. She had some modeling before acting, too. I mean, she is Not to diminish her talent, because she is... I think she is a a talented actress. Such a talented actress. Like, for real. So the fact... I think that it would almost be easier to, like, diminish her because of her looks to forget how talented she is, you know? Like, but she truly... And and her nepotism. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. She truly is so talented. She met the French filmmaker Roger Vadim in 1963 and the two dated for three years before getting married in 1965. In 1968, she was cast in Vadim's film Barbarella. And Mm -hmm. now this is a very memorable scene in the documentary that I mentioned because she was like traumatized by this movie. Mm -hmm. Even though she was doing this film with her husband, she was Well, she's a sex object in the
1: movie, basically. Yeah, and the first
2: like, four minutes of the opening title sequence she's just naked lying down and the camera's just kind of like spinning around her and she was so nervous about this scene that she ended up just like chugging vodka and getting wasted and they shot the scene and it was like the end of the night and a bat flew through and like ruined it so they were like all right reshoot the next day oh awful And so the one that's in the movie, she's completely hungover during that take and like feeling horrible. So she was like, that movie was just not great. I mean, from her telling, it really seemed like her husband wasn't very supportive of her having a hard time with that either. So it didn't sound like the best experience, but it like because she was such a sex symbol in that movie, like it kind of created another level of like star power for her a little bit at that time. Yeah. She also became pregnant that year in 1968, super, super busy, and the couple decided to have their baby in France. While she was living in France, sitting around being pregnant, she began to absorb what was happening around her in the world, particularly what was going on with the war in Vietnam. And she talks about, you know, when you're pregnant, you're like a sponge and you're more empathetic and you just like she felt like her eyes were suddenly being open to everything. That's Especially being further away. Yeah. If
1: you've ever had, I mean, neither one of us have, you know, been pregnant. But we've had pregnant friends. But we've had pregnant friends. And let me tell you, that is so true. I mean, I have friends. My best friend Amy still doesn't watch or read. And she used to like watch and absorb like true crime and stuff like that. She can't do it. Like her, yeah. Like there's just like a button that got switched in her during pregnancy where she's just like, no, I break down
2: now. I (laughs) can't do it. The empathy is too high. Yeah, exactly. And so she was reading about just world affairs and was like I can't be in France I have to be back in the states and I have to do something and her life drastically changed after this like the Jane Fonda that was known completely changed she got home cut her blonde hair dyed it brunette got bangs her whole look completely changed and her whole attitude changed along with it as well After their daughter, Vanessa, was born, they returned to the States. She quickly befriended members of the Black Panther Party and began participating in civil rights protests and holding fundraisers in her home. She befriended the big players, including Angela Davis, who she would one day visit in prison. She also supported the release of Huey Newton. She called the Black Panthers our revolutionary vanguard. We must support them with love, money, propaganda, and risk. Jane has been outspoken about her privilege since the 60s. In 2018, she put it into words, stating, "'Because we're white, we have had privilege.'" Even the poorest of us have had privilege and we need to recognize that. And we have to understand what it is that keeps racism in place. The policies, redlining, banking policies, mortgage policies, all of the things that are really making it very, very difficult for black people to lift themselves up. The policies have to be changed and then white people have to understand the history that has led to this and we have to try to change within ourselves.
1: Yeah, you know, I know that there's a lot of criticism I know that there's a lot of criticism of Jane Fonda because of her privilege. And I yeah. think that that's an important thing to not forget. And Well, and she to criticizes point out. herself but, about it. And, you know, she's a human being. Like, not every step that she's made has been perfect. No. Like, she's definitely made mistakes throughout her journey as a human being existing on, on this planet and a feminist, you know. Yeah. But I do think that her willingness to try to pay attention to all those intersectional interwoven issues um, levels of oppression which I do think she does her best she like to her toes yeah. in
2: everything truly I mean it's so it's hard to truly tell a story about her life because it really is like one event after another of her like different things that she's getting involved in. But it's that's, wild. that's so
1: human. Like, yeah. that's what we all do. And exactly. We well, and I think she just c-
2: has such a bleeding heart for everybody yeah. that it doesn't just stop with and one group.
1: We don't have the capacity to give 100% of our attention to every single problem. We, Of course, we can care about multiple problems, multiple systems of oppression at once. Yeah. But we can't give 100% of ourselves to, any, to every single cause all yeah. the time, right? So... Of course, you know, she's learning things all the time and she's yeah. gonna be really and passionate. I think she saw
2: herself as like, like, not like I'm an asset, but it's like, well, maybe something with my name and my wealth or she something is an asset. can be there. Yeah, yeah, like, but not but not thinking to herself, like having a big head, but just being like, if I can be of service in some way, I yeah, want to yeah. do that, you know? So, because of her connection to the Black Panther Party, it was discovered in 2013 that she was one of about 1,600 Americans who had been monitored by NSA between 1967 and 1973. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jane helped form the FTA Tour, which stands for Free the Army. They couldn't say fuck the army, so they said free the army.
1: As also, a,
2: <laughs> true, I mean, honestly, for Vietnam, yeah, free the army. Half those people don't want to be there. Hell yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, as a response to Bob Hope's USO tour, and Jane described this as political vaudeville. During this time, they interviewed soldiers along the West Coast waiting to be deployed and had frank interviews with them about how they felt about the war. This footage was eventually turned into a film in 1972 called Letters to Jane. Jane went to Hanoi in Vietnam in July of 1972 to witness the dike systems that American troops had destroyed. At the time, Americans were like, we didn't do this, like this didn't happen. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to go over there and I want to see for myself what's going on. And she wanted to visit the prisoners of war, but also really wanted to see what was going on with the Vietnamese people as well. So while she was there, she was photographed in an anti-aircraft gun, which outraged Americans to this very day, giving her the nickname Hanoi Jane. So she was sitting in like a Vietnamese weapon machine, essentially. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's the thing that I remember. My I grew up in a military family. Yeah, My family was very anti-Jane Fonda because of her trip, because she was seen. And, you know, knowing who she is, or my understanding of who she is, I think it's exactly what you said. She just has an overabundance of empathy for all people. And so yeah. I think what what happens then is you are always trying to put yourself in the shoes of other people. And so I think that she had what was perceived as Too much
2: friendliness,
1: exactly. Well, and that's the
2: thing is she's discussed this experience and her like deep regret that that photo had ever happened. Like truly, she's said many times about how terribly it looks and how aware of that she is and how she in no way wanted to hurt the American you know troops and families back at home or anything like that but it was one of those things she's also said that you know she was visiting there and she just like she's like I just got in it and there was a picture in it you know oh yeah it was just one of those things
1: that's one of the kind of things that would happen to me because I'm such a like people pleaser and also just like i do think that there's oh this you're horrible, showing me this thing okay yeah and there's this horrible war going on and you have compassion for all people involved in the conflict you know and so I, I that's something that i could totally make that misstep and then it's like the photo scene around the world you know yeah
2: exactly and it really 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 changed her reputation i'm sure her father was pissed well that's too bad sorry henry yeah henry fonda kind of sucks She was there for two weeks visiting prisoners of war and promised to bring messages home to their family. While all of this was going on, back in 1970, Jane was infamously arrested at an airport on suspicion of drug trafficking. She was re-entering the United States from Canada after an anti-war speaking tour where they found pills on her, which she insisted were vitamins, but she was still arrested. One of the officers allegedly told Jane that they were there on the orders of President Nixon. Wasn't this and so President Nixon has called her out by name before. So like he legit hated her, and it kind of seems like it was a setup because they were vitamins. They tested uh, the pills. They were vitamins. And if they
1: weren't, it's the seventies. Yeah, everybody was on pills. Come on, JFK
2: was on pills in the sixties. Stop it. Yeah, come on. We're better than this. But her mugshot became absolutely infamous. You've all seen this photo. She's got her little mullet. She's got her fist raised in solidarity. And it became very popular again when she started Fire Drill Fridays in 2018. She used that for like all of her merch and things like that. It's a very, very, very famous photo. Jane was also involved in causes involving Native American rights. She went along with activist Bernie Whitebear, leading a Native group to occupy Fort Lawton in response to the declining of reservations in 1970. She's a big critic of oil pipelines because of their being built without the consent of Native tribal lands. Back to her film career a little bit, because while she's doing all this, she is still a movie star. She had also decided during this time that she would only take roles that matched her morals and focused on important issues. She would also go on to have the most successful decade of her career in the 70s. She won her first Academy Award in 1971 for her role as a high-priced call girl in the murder mystery Clute. To prepare for the role, she spent time with and interviewed sex workers, as she was afraid that she wouldn't be able to pull off such a war and wanted to do it justice. She dominated the Best Actress category at every award show for the 1971 to 1972 season. She and Roger Vadim divorced in 1972, and in July of 1973, she married activist Tom Hayden. Gosh, that's a quick turnaround. I
1: always think that. Like, I'm like, if I was ever single again, the way I would be single
2: for, like, a long time, like, I could... I planned to do that, Keegan. I was in a relationship for almost five years. I think I was single for, like, a week. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the plan. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, oh I need I need downtime after yeah. <laughs> Oh, I was ready to just like be a slut for a while and that didn't happen. But what are you gonna do? Oh well. So Jane and Tom would actually go on to be married for 17 years and they were both um, friends with members of the Black Panther Party and they would go on to adopt a teenage daughter, well, unofficially adopt the teenage daughter of two members of the Black Panther Party. The father was like one of the like armed guys that would like walk the streets to like protect people. And he was involved in a shootout with the cops and was sent to prison. And the mother was left with like five children and descended into like abusive alcoholism. And it was really hard. And so this little girl would go to this like camp that Jane started and they became really close. And then she eventually just kind of like started living with her and never left. Her story alone is like super amazing. I was reading her Wikipedia page. (laughs) It's awesome. Jane struggled with relationships with men throughout her life, and much of it she attributes to her relationship with her father. After her divorce from Tom, she married Ted Turner in 1991, and they divorced within two years. Then in 2009, she married record producer Richard Perry, and that relationship ended in 2017. And what's funny is that she and Ted Turner were only married for two years, but she refers to him as her favorite ex-husband.
1: You know, I do find that interesting, too, because... You know, I'm not going to say anything because I just I feel like Ted Turner has some weird politics going on.
2: He's like the starter of CNN and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, he's in the documentary a bit and it seems like they just like get along really well. But I don't know. I think like Tom Hayden's activism was more like her speed, but he didn't seem like a super great like sometimes you can't be with
1: people who are too
2: similar to you. Right. Like, it doesn't or at least have the same like amount of passion as you about something. It can be too much, you know? Yeah. She said in an interview that until the age of 62, she felt she had to seek validation of men in order to give herself value. I think this is something she's always known and valued as she's been part of the feminist movement and fought for women's rights as long as she's been fighting for everything else. She thanks the feminist movement for helping her see the rape that had occurred to her as a child was not her fault. She said, I've been sexually abused as a child and I've been fired because I wouldn't sleep with my boss. I always thought it was my fault that I didn't do or say the right thing. I know young girls who've been raped and didn't even know it was rape. They think it must be because I said no the wrong way. She has also been very outspoken about violence against women and sees how the patriarchy is just as harmful for men. She says, we need to help men understand why they are so threatened and change the way we view masculinity. In 1979, she attended the White Knight Riots, the response to the assassination of Harvey Milk. There, she was interviewed and asked if she believed the gay community was being discriminated against. To that, she said that they are culturally, psychologically, economically, and, politic- and politically discriminated against. Why do people ask questions like that? To get responses like that, Be- I think. But it's yeah, so stupid. It,
1: because, again, I mean, not again, I guess we just rec- we recorded the mini, and yeah. I'm, thinking about, I'm thinking about Josh Hawley. But it's not a good faith Like, I just don't know the answer to this because I'm like, of course you do. You sound
2: stupid. Of course you do. Of course course you know that, like... And a government official was just killed. Like, you know why we're here, you know? She was also asked if the community used her as an advocate, to which she responded that she hopes they do. She said, they are a very powerful movement. They don't need me, but they like me, and they know by working together we can be stronger than either entity by itself. So let's move on to the 80s. One of the other things that we all know Jane Fonda for is for the amazing movie 9 to 5 with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton. The film is about three working women who live out their fantasies of getting even with and overthrowing the company's autocratic, sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical, bigot boss. <laughs> so it's a very like workplace white feminist movie kind yeah. of, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I love
1: Lily Tomlin though. I met her. She came to... Stop. Yeah. She- I have like
2: a, like a crush on her.
1: <laughs> so my old theater company, Neo, who I used to be involved in uh they had a once a twice a year fundraiser at hamburger mary's where we would do bingo with drag queen bingo and we would always get like a special guest to do the um call the numbers and so once we had florence henderson who's
2: what yeah mrs brady mrs brady oh my god and then once we had lily tomlin it was awesome I love her. My best friend Katie and I always say that when we get older, she's going to be Grace and I'm going to be Frankie. And it's just, it fits too much. Super lovely. Yeah. I love that. Throughout her life, Jane was always wanting to find a way to build a better relationship with her father. And she believed that working together may do just that. She worked to receive the rights for on Golden Pond specifically for she and her dad. The father-daughter rift on screen closely resembled their relationship in real life. And she talks about this in the documentary as well as how she was like, I feel like my father was telling me all the things that he couldn't tell me in real life through his role in this movie. And she just felt at peace, feeling like she could finally get that emotion out with her dad that she couldn't in her real life. Yeah, it must have been very therapeutic for them. Yeah, definitely. For their roles, they became the first father-daughter duo to win Oscar nominations Jane did not win any Academy Awards for this movie, but Henry won for Best Actor, and Jane accepted the award on his behalf as he was ill and couldn't attend. And he ended up passing away five months later. So it was really the timing and everything for Jane was I love that for so her perfect. that she got to
1: have that because it yeah. should never the onus should never be on the child to repair a relationship like that. But it but worked. She pursued <laughs> it, and it worked, and I'm happy for her that she didn't have to... You know, uh, that's what we, I would love to have something like that with my dad where it, it doesn't come to the end and it's still,
2: you know. Yeah, it's still up in the air and it, things feel undone. Yeah, it'd be know? nice to have closure. Yeah, I think about that a lot as well. She also discovered a new love in the 80s along with everyone else. And that love was aerobics. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I really want to do a
1: I I was listening to something that um, Jamie Loftus, who's a podcaster, very uh, incredibly brilliant podcaster, but she did kind of ironically at first. She was just like working her way through all of the Jane Fonda aerobics tapes and she's like, I'm in the best shape of my life. She's I like, love those it. like
2: really kick your ass. I kind of want to do it. I would love to. I believe I don't know if my mom did Jane Fonda or if it was something very similar, but I used to work out with my mom when I was little and I would put on like a pair of tights or leggings and then wear my underwear over that. Yeah. So it would give it like the Leotard look, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was real, it was real cute. So she invented the Jane Fonda workout, which was sold on VHS tapes and became a bestseller for many, 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 many years. I mean, she made the VHS tape industry like blow up. I mean, she was really the like at
1: home workout queen. Like she started that whole thing that became like massively popular during the pandemic. Yeah. You can thank Jane Fonda for that.
2: Thanks, Jane. Jane. Now, I see this as being controversial, but it is a big part of Jane's life. So I wanted to mention it. And she credits her aerobics routine as helping her recover from her eating disorder. And she talks Mm -hmm. about how it helped her, you know, feel like she had more control over her body and that it could change her perception of herself. And I think it's important to add that. But I also just like want to glaringly say that I disagree.
1: (laughs) Well, I think it's a slippery slope. So for me, like during the pandemic, getting into at-home workouts did make me feel like I had control over my environment. But you don't have an
2: eating disorder. Yeah,
1: because I was at home all the time. But it can feel like if you're somebody who struggles with your image, your weight, your body all that stuff already, it can feel like trading one obsession for another obsession. Yeah, it's
2: something that I remember because Demi Lovato and I went through treatment at the same time. And I remember seeing her doing all these like workout videos and stuff and being like, why can't I do this? And like talking to my team about how it's like, I don't know what she's doing, but like I was under very regulated exercise because it is important to exercise. I had to build up my bone density again, get my muscle tone back, all of these things. Like it's super important to get a proper amount of exercise. But you know, orthorexia is a thing, yep, over-exercising yeah. exer- is a thing. Yeah. She's struggled with bulimia. I mean, over-exercising can, in a way, almost be seen as similar to bulimia, well, is, in a yeah, way, it's, it's another way exercise to rid bulimia. yourself. Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I don't necessarily agree with that being how she you know, found recovery in some way, but I'm glad that at least it was a way for her to feel, I think it's important to, to think about exercise as being a way to feel connected to your body. Yes, Especially oh, yeah. for somebody who struggles with body image, eating disorders, issues with food. You just have to be more careful. A person like you, you know, I mean, like, of course, you still want to be aware of what your mentality is when you're exercising to keep your mental health strong. But it's such a slippery slope, especially for someone who is in recovery and who's struggled for so many years. Right. I mean, even the like quote unquote
1: average person yeah. who maybe hasn't had a history of, of eating disorders working out can become addictive, especially if you're on a routine that requires you to do something every day. Yeah. Uh, it can become a fixation where you're just like, I have to do this. And I think it's important well, to it's like, it's also
2: a fixation on the results
1: and on the results. And so I think it is just an important thing to go in with your eyes wide open about, what you, what, what you're doing, why you're doing it, all of those things. Don't, I mean, it's you don't have to feel bad about like being, feeling good or feeling in control or feeling in your body or like any of those things, but just like be very aware Yeah, while you're doing it.
2: And then it's like for a person with a healthy brain, listening to your body and being aware yeah. of something that oh, works. If you want to rest, when you're rest. Not, yeah. But when you're not, you do, it is helpful to have somebody else there that's helping to guide you. So yeah. just, I wasn't hearing a lot of like professional help stuff being thrown out there. So I, I yeah, yeah. thought it was important to still mention it, but I did want to totally. make that very, important caveat there so of course when the war on iraq began jane once again went into activist mode and spoke out against it she argued that the military campaign in iraq would only turn the world further against the united states making more terrorist attacks likely in the future nowadays besides her role as grace on grace and frankie jane has been best known for her role in environmental activism particularly against climate change She was arrested for three consecutive weeks in the month of October in 2019 while protesting climate change outside the U.S. Capitol. She was also arrested in the first week of November, making it her fourth consecutive arrest in four weeks. She explained her position in an op-ed for the New York Times, and I have a couple quotes from that that I'm going to read. We must all face the harsh reality that our planet is rapidly approaching an irreversible tipping point beyond which the unraveling of our ecosystems will be beyond our control. There are many things we can all do. We can join protests, engage in civil disobedience, and risk arrest, but we must also see this as a uniquely critical and political moment that it is. Out of these arrests came Fire Drill Fridays, which I mentioned earlier. Jane said that she was inspired by the activism of Greta Thunberg's quote, Our House is on Fire. Also, during this time, she purchased this red coat that she was seen being arrested in every Friday when she would go to the Capitol. And she vowed that that would be the last item of clothing that she would ever buy. So if you've seen her at like award shows and things like that, she's been rewearing all of her old gowns and stuff like that because she isn't going to be participating in that part of the world anymore, Mm -hmm. which I think is really admirable. It is. Yeah. In March 2022, she launched the Jane Fonda Climate Political Action Committee with the purpose of ousting politicians supporting the fossil fuel industry. Jane is single today and considers Ted Turner to be her favorite ex-husband, like I said, and the two are incredibly close. Like I mentioned earlier as well, her daughter Lulu is now an activist as well. Um, She was really big in helping support refugees from Sudan. She's also got a memoir out there. I would love to read both Jane and her Daughters in Mars now. Um, and yeah, Jane is still acting today. She's still doing her thing. There was like another movie on Amazon Prime on her Wikipedia that they were talking about coming out with soon. I think they just finished Grace and Frankie. I haven't finished this season yet. I think they did, yeah, yeah. But that is such a feel-good show to me. I love Sam Watterson on it. I love... Um, it's not Amelia. It's not Amelia Estevez is it? No, who no, is that? No, it's his dad. Yeah. Why am I? Shane.
0: Martin Sheen. Martin yes. Sheen.
2: <laughs> they look so much alike. It's know, wild. They really do. It's, that's a great show. But yeah, I, especially after watching that Jane and Five Acts documentary, I became like in love with her. So yeah. that's Jane Fonda. Uh,
1: awesome. Uh, I do love her. I just so admire her in that, like, she never stops. And I want to be like that. I just, you know. And I want to follow. She just literally
2: cares about everything. and
1: y- Yeah. And you should. Exactly. Right? Like all of it matters and all of it's important. The personal is political. All of it. And That's I think sometimes I like- we lose sight of, especially with climate activism, we lose sight of how political that feels is you yeah, know, and how important that is because Certainly. our house is on fire and we should be talking about it all the time and yeah. I think it gets lost amongst like all the other terrible things that happen in our world every day so I love that Jane has kind of taken that up as her new mantle as she's yeah. gotten older that's she great. just
2: gives all the fucks like that's all I want to be in life is to care about absolutely everyone I mean it was hard to even like write a timeline because she did so many things at once. Yeah, like she was doing her anti-war activism and working with the Black Panthers at the same time, and going to the White Night riots. And like well, I was like, how do I write this down? <laughs> and with the
1: with her climate activism, something that I really love is that she's not doing it for her. Like she's in her seventies. Yeah, it's not like, she's like her eighties now. I or think. in her eighties, like she's it's not for her. Greta Thunberg is like, I mean, I think she genuinely believes in caring for the planet, but it's also like, yeah. The she's reason got why more gen- life to live here yeah gen z cares a lot because i'm like they gotta be on this planet for a long time and they want to make sure that it's livable for a long time jane is doing it for us like she's like i'm not doing this for me i'm gonna be gone in the next however
2: many you know yeah so she just gives so many bucks yes yeah. and yeah. that's why i love her awesome thank you for sharing thank you i'm excited <laughs> for yours but we have to take a break first
1: okay yeah let's take a break and we will come right back
0: Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt.
1: Okay, and we're back. So before I get started talking about this person, I'm going to go ahead and just give a big trigger warning for this entire section. Oh, uh, goddess bless us. I am going to be talking about someone who survived Auschwitz and her work involves a lot of graphic Kind of descriptions of what happened in the camps.
2: If so, I haven't heard of this person, I'm going to be pissed because I have read so many memoirs I told of you people you who survived. You're going to be interested.
1: By this, um, so you know me. I do just want to say that right off the top, um, this is also someone um, who worked in the medical field. So if you're sensitive to, to things like that, um, me, I would just, <laughs> yeah, I would. I mean, sorry, you have to be here, but other people, um, if if this isn't for you, if you don't like hearing about the horrors of the Holocaust, you might want to just
2: call it a day at the end of this episode. How many like? like organs and needles are involved oh i mean oh god it's, it's not
1: needles but it might it's worse oh, probably no. um so
2: okay let's 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 jump right like in you we were talking about gray's anatomy i can't watch the doctory part of the doctor shows like i can't i can't do it and i won't okay <laughs> <sighs> all right i'm Breathing gonna be deeply
1: i'm gonna be talking about gazella pearl And she came up on one of my friend's stories on Instagram um, because... Don't, don't, don't. You Google her right now. I
2: want to see the picture. You have to wait. But I want to know if I know who she is.
1: Just buckle in for this story. God, you're mean. (laughs) Uh, But she had come up on on somebody's story um, because it is relevant to what is happening right now in America. So she was oh, born. <laughs> she was born and grew up in Mara, Mara which is I had to spell that out phonetically. I was like you
2: killed that. Like <laughs> Thank you, you so nailed much. that pronunciation.
1: I it. Uh, which was then part of Hungary but is now part of Romania. So it went through this I I spent a month in Romania and when I went there we went through Hungary. That whole area is kind of
2: ambiguous and because yeah. of the wars that happened, the borders got real mushy. Like that and like you know Czechoslovakia got split up. Like that whole area is all like very Yeah. So it is part
1: weird. of Romanian now, but she is Hungarian. Um, and it's now called Siget, I think. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But she was born on December 10th, 1907. She shares her birthplace with future Nobel Peace Prize winner, Eli Weissel.
2: Yeah. Um, so, and you just read his book. I mean. Oh, no, God. I didn't
1: read his. his he wrote Night. I oh, read um Victor. Victor Frankel's. Frankel's book. Yes. Yep. Yes. Which is. Man Search for both. Meaning so is good. so good. Uh, so pre-war, Saiget had a large Jewish community. More than one-third of its residents were Jewish, according to a 1910 census. And there were dozens of synagogues and Jewish-owned businesses. The Pearls were no exception. They had seven children. They all studied the Torah for hours a day. And, you know, they, they celebrated all of the major Jewish holidays, and they went to temple. So, Gazella's father, Moisha, was a businessman who brought in enough income to employ a live in maid and a governess for his children. Wow. So, they were upper well middle class. Up. Yeah. yeah. And her mother, Frida, was a homemaker. All but one of their children went on to receive doctorates in medicine or other fields. And Gazella showed a love for learning early on, learning many languages, including Hungarian, Romanian, German, French, and Yiddish. Wow. At the age of 16, she was the only woman and only Jewish person to graduate from her secondary school. Hungry for knowledge, she begged her father to allow her to attend medical school. And he was hesitant because he feared that going into medicine would cause his daughter to eventually abandon her faith and leave Judaism. Mm. So after months Why? of... I don't know. I mean, I think that there's sometimes this fear with very religious people that science is going to... okay. Um, interrupt their faith in some way. Yeah, it's just
2: interesting because, like, there were so many doctors that came out of that family. Yeah, and I don't know
1: where, I don't know where she, like, was in the... In the line of in the the lineup. siblings and stuff. So maybe she was early on and she opened the door for her. I mean, other I was also kind of
2: wondering if it was like a sexist thing. I
1: think it is as well. Like,
2: because she's a woman,
1: I think it's a you big part of it. You can't
2: possibly have two things going on for you at once. Yes. Like your, you know, piety and your yeah. career, yeah. And your studies. And it
1: said that he was afraid, in, in the articles I read, it said that she, he was afraid she would abandon her Judaism. But I think that that was also like. She would abandon her duties as
2: a like a Jewish w- wife, wife and mother. mother. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, So after months of back and forth with her father, she eventually approached him with a prayer book and swore to him on the book that wherever life took her, whatever circumstance, she promised to remain a good and true Jew. And her father um, gave in. And years later, when she was paid by her first patient, she bought him a new prayer book with his name engraved on it. To be like, I'm keeping my promise to you.
2: How sweet. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Gazella attended medical school in Berlin and began working as a physician, but when the Nazis began rising to power in 1933, Jewish doctors began being stripped of their positions and purged from medical institutions. She then returned to her hometown and became a well-known and trusted gynecologist and married a fellow doctor internist, Dr. Ephraim Krauss, with whom she had two children. Not long after their marriage, in March of 1944, Nazi Germany invaded Hungary, and Dr. Pearl, her husband, her young son, her parents, and her extended family were all rounded up and sent to Auschwitz, where they were immediately separated. Mm. So as soon as they got there, and her husband told her when they were being separated that I'll see you again in Jerusalem. That was their like <sighs> promise to each other at the end. Oh, Dr. Pearl also had a young daughter at the time whom she managed to hide with a non-Jewish family before the Nazis came for her. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So now alone and imprisoned at the Hungarian women's camp in Auschwitz, the Nazis soon discovered that she had been a successful gynecologist and passed that information to the camp's chief physician. Oh, I
2: know where this is going. Joseph Mengele. Mengele. Yeah. So for those of you who don't
1: know, though I feel like his atrocities are fairly well-known. Joseph Mengele was a sadistic doctor at Auschwitz who performed deadly experiments on prisoners. Infamously, he experimented on twins in the camp, often infecting one twin with a deadly disease and injected blood from the infected twin into the healthy one. He once murdered 14 twins in one night by injecting their hearts with chloroform. This is the kind of thing that he would do. It's just,
2: it's awful. There was a it was a book I read and I can't remember if it was a historical fiction book that was like loosely based on someone's experiences or if it was a memoir, but it had a lot to do with someone who was a Jewish person that that had like medical experience that had to be of witness and help with a lot of these really atrocious. Yeah. So as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, I didn't put the medical experience thing together right away. Yeah. I mean, and
1: she she did as well. Like, she was forced to participate. Exactly.
2: Yeah. She's not like, yeah, let me help this sadistic fucking dirtbag. No.
1: I mean, that's one thing. If you do read Man's Search for Meaning, I think his... A lot of the criticism of that book that you'll find is that they think that he's too kind of like detached and cold about the way that he talks about life in the camp, but he's talking about it from a clinical point of view. Yeah. Um, that's the point of it. But when you read the first half of that book and his descriptions of what happened in the camp, you do completely understand that they were put in such an inhuman experience. And they
2: had to do things yes, at times to survive. that would not be in their nature to if they were in their regular lives. I mean, when you're put in situations that are so outside of your norm, you will do things that you morally might not yes, do in you can't other situations. Judge and them you on the same scale. Totally not. And I mean, especially, I almost, I just feel very bad. I remember, I think it was the same book that there was like a woman, maybe it was a different book. There's like a woman that ended up like helping protect her son by sleeping with a Nazi soldier I mean there are so many of these stories where like these women did not want to do this these people didn't want to do this but what other choice did they have they were going to be killed either way it kind of seemed like it's like well at least this way I can stay around a little bit longer
1: yeah and they can find ways to do good yeah and that is absolutely what she did Um, you know I'm not going to go too in depth about the things that Mengele did it wasn't just twins though although he had a real fixation with twins he also had a real fixation with heterochromia so like having two different colored eyes all of his experiments were done in an effort to create a master race right to like figure out how like things would work so with the um, heterochromia he would inject chemicals into the eye like while people were awake with needles to see if he could change the colors
2: of eyes right you know
1: so things like that
2: And And also just to see as much pain as he could. No, he's he's a sadist.
1: He was absolutely, I mean, he, I think, continued to maintain that it was done in the interest of science, but the truth is no person could do that. I don't care how much you love science. No person could do that to another human being and be that detached to their pain and suffering unless you have a certain level of sadism going on. Yeah. Um, Another group that Mengele was fixated on was pregnant women. So initially, Dr. Pearl was sent to Dr. Mengala to work in the hospital, and she worked not only as a gynecologist, but also as a general doctor, bandaging up wounds and setting broken bones. She was given paper that she used as bandages and one small knife that she sharpened with a stone, and those were the tools she had. They didn't give her... She wasn't allowed to keep her kit, obviously. So every... Every surgery she did, everything she did had to be done with... Can you imagine how dirty everything horrible, must have been? Horrible. Awful. Truly. Soon, Dr. Mangala began instructing her not to treat the pregnant women in the camp, but to instead report them to him. He told her that these women would be sent to a different camp where they would receive better care and nutrition. In the early days, women would run directly up to Mangala, claiming to be pregnant in hopes of receiving better treatment. Soon, though, Dr. Pearl began to realize what was really going on. So, these women were being taken to the research block where they were being used as guinea pigs. If they survived through pregnancy and delivered a child, often the child was experimented on. Yeah. One woman who managed, again, trigger warning, one woman who managed to escape the gas chamber after being taken to Mengele while pregnant went on later to say that after she gave birth, her breasts were bound and her child was denied food in an experiment to see how long an infant could go without nutrition.
2: Oh my
1: God. Eventually, another doctor in the camp injected the baby with morphine to end its suffering. (sighs) Pregnant women who were not experimented on were often beaten and thrown directly into the gas chamber or into the crematorium alive because they were unable to work and therefore useless. (sighs) Horrified, Dr. Pearl made a vow. Never again would there be a pregnant woman in Auschwitz. Yeah. Birth
2: control.
1: She's like, if they're here, they're not. Yeah. So uh, this is from a BBC article that I read that was so massively helpful. In their quest to create a master race, the Nazis explicitly singled Jewish women out as targets of extermination. Simultaneously, Aryan women were encouraged to bear as many children as possible. In most ghettos, it was forbidden for women to give birth on pain of death, says Beverly Chambers, author of Birth, Sex, and Abuse, Women's Voices Under Nazi Rule. In the camps, the danger was even more extreme. As Pearl put it, the greatest crime in Auschwitz was to be pregnant. While some women arrived at Auschwitz already pregnant, rape was common in the camp, and many women became pregnant while there. So this is from a History.com article. While most sexual acts in Auschwitz were not consensual, sometimes sex was used as a commodity in exchange for goods. Upon her arrival, Dr. Pearl was given men's shoes that were far too big for her. She needed a piece of string to tighten them and learned of a male prisoner who had string. When she was able to locate him, she brought her bread ration as an exchange, but he was not interested in her food. He looked her up and down and demanded her body. She was disgusted, but knew that in order to survive... She needed shoes to take her to and from work. It was a matter of life and death. Women used what they had to survive and their brave acts of trading sex for goods caused shame and embarrassment and could also lead to life-threatening pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So I say all that only to say that like, yes, obviously these women were being sexually abused and raped, but they were also forced in a position where they were having to sometimes make it, I mean, I. It's do, like a
2: gun to your head situation. Yeah, it's so it's
1: rape by coercion. Yeah. right? like rape because of circumstance. Right, where rape, you're is saying, rape is
2: rape. You're not, you know, you're not clarifying any sort of different thing like that. But I think it is important to acknowledge what happened because that did happen a lot. Like I mentioned earlier, it was ways to keep people safe. It was a way to be fed. Right, it but you was, still felt deep shame, even though it was something that course, you felt you had to do, especially as someone that was very religious and very pious and married and had kids you know I can imagine in this day and age the things she must be saying to herself for making certain decisions and the indignity
1: of feeling like you have
2: to trade your body for a piece of string right you know like that's
1: it's it's horrifying And, and of course also knowing that you know as she said the greatest crime in Auschwitz was being pregnant so you're also putting yourself in a position to get pregnant in order to just live another day Yeah. you know it's It's very scary. When Dr. Pearl learned of a pregnant woman in the camp, she would approach them and explain that if the SS were to discover she was pregnant, they would surely end the life of her and her child should the pregnancy be brought to term. With the consent of the women, Dr. Pearl began performing abortions. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. While abortions were frowned upon in Jewish law, a fetus does not have the status of a person in Jewish law. And therefore, the life of the pregnant person takes precedent over the fetus. So in the article that I read, they um, talked to a religious scholar, and that's what they were saying. They're like, look, obviously, um, in our religion, it's not like we're, we're not encouraging it necessarily, but we also say that the life and health and well-being of the adult living in this situation is um, more valuable than the fetus because the fetus is, doesn't have the same rights as a human. Did we not, talk
2: about that last week on the news episode or was I just talking about that with Max? Because that we, was... We did, we did talk about yeah, it. because that, that's been brought up recently. There's
1: one synagogue, I think, in Florida that is um, trying to sue them based on religious freedom that they should be allowed to save the mother's life. Yeah. She began doing secret abortions at night at the hospital where a 17 year old daughter of one of the camp's nurses, a woman named Leah Fridler, would hold a candle while Dr. Pearl would perform the procedure, often without tools. Mm-hmm. So ah. Yeah, they would dilate the cervix and then she would reach in and ah. remove the fetus fetus with her bare hand. <gasps> yeah, because she didn't have any How do you tools. dilate the cervix on your own? I don't know. I don't another know. hand? And it's dark. I don't know there's one candle and you know they would lay them on the floor it was like a dirty floor <sighs> um and if they were lucky she would have her knife but oftentimes she didn't have her knife oh so, my
2: god mm-hmm. oh I mean thank god she's smart because I'd be like what the fuck am I feeling for right
1: yeah no she's a gynecologist so she knew exactly what she was feeling for I
2: wonder if it's I mean it doesn't I don't know if it's as a, I'm not a doctor is it as effective with a finger I don't know. I mean, better than nothing. I mean, and I feel like it would be safer because it's not a knife that could like stab you on the inside. I guess if you or... know what
1: you're looking for.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If she was unable to perform an abortion,
1: she would do what she could to conceal the pregnancy, taping down their bellies. In the book she would later publish, I Was a Doctor at Auschwitz, that's the name of her memoir, she recalled a time when she helped a woman give birth. The infant lived two days before its cries drew attention from the other prisoners. She knew that if the officers got wind of the baby and got a hold of it, it would face a terrible fate as would the mother. And so she made a devastating and tragic decision. She described kissing the baby's face before smothering it and hiding it under a mountain of corpses that were waiting to be cremated. So she talks a lot about the trauma that she experienced throughout this, but it really, you know, and she talks about how like doctors take an oath to do no harm. And in this situation, she couldn't do that because what would have happened to that infant and to the mother of that infant would have been so much I know. worse,
2: Yeah. You know, and in order to it keep. It was mercy, but God, that's hard to it's hear. It's
1: horrible. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but I didn't want to leave that out. I thought about leaving it out Um, No, that's entirely, but it's, it's the horror of like what she was faced with. You know, she dedicated her life, she experienced joy, bringing babies into the world. It was what she liked to do. So you know that it had to be a situation where she understood she worked with these people every day. She saw what was done to people in these experiments. She saw what was done to babies.
2: And she didn't want the baby to be tortured. Right. Yeah. You know, like, of course, in regular circumstances, this woman wouldn't have made those decisions. But this is in the sake of mercy. Yeah. And
1: it was a huge risk anyway for her to have allowed the baby to have delivered the baby in the first place. Because you can't hide an infant. It's going to cry. You know it's going to be found out, and everybody would have been murdered, she yeah, included. I mean, you how know. do they
2: even get through with delivering two days. the baby
1: and two days of the baby living? I don't know. Yeah. During the day, she continued her work as as a doctor and was called upon to help Mangala in his experiments. She was forced to operate on patients without anesthesia and recalled the infamous female guard Irma Grace Grace Grace. How do you pronounce her last name?
2: I don't know, but she sucks.
1: She's horrible. Um, but she's... she's. If you can look her up. She's a infamous sadistic female guard. She
2: was like... There's a name. She was like the bulldog or the... Yeah, She's got like that. some the horrible of, fucking yeah, name.
1: Horrible, horrible. Um, but... She recalled her observing the horrific procedures. She would be in the room observing yeah. them. And her description of her sadistic enjoyment of viewing the operations helped to convict Irma after the war when she was put on trial and subsequently executed for war crimes. Good. A year after entering Auschwitz, Dr. Pearl was moved to Bergen Belsen in 1945, where she would witness the liberation of the camps. After being freed, she wandered Germany on foot in search of her family. She discovered that her husband had been beaten to death shortly before the liberation. Oh, no. And her son had been cremated in the camp. <sighs> After surviving the horror of Auschwitz, she no longer wanted to live and attempted suicide by poison. Mm. After recovering, Dr. Pearl felt too traumatized by her experience to return to medicine. Makes Understandable. Sense. She began traveling the world as a speaker, raising money for refugees. During her travels in America, she met then-first lady... Eleanor Roosevelt, who organized a kosher lunch for her and encouraged her to go back into medicine, but she wasn't ready. In 1948, she published her memoir, the first to attest to the reproductive and sexual horrors inflicted on women prisoners. She also wrote to the U.S. War Department to offer herself up as a witness at any trial of Mengele, calling him, quote, this most perverse mass murderer, of the twentieth century and testifying that under his direction, Auschwitz became a perfectly organized death camp. Such a trial never occurred because Mengele lived out the rest of his days as a fugitive in South America until he died in a swimming accident in nineteen seventy nine. <sighs> Fuck
2: that man. No I hope he's fucking rotting. justice. Horrible. Did she ever find her daughter?
1: We're getting there. Okay. So that same year, President Harry Truman signed a special bill granting Pearl permanent citizenship in the United States. And it was this bill um, that w- there would be an updated version two, two years later that would allow for more people to be given kind of like special citizenship where they didn't have to jump through so many of the hoops right. to like Holocaust survivors. Well, good. Yeah. In the 1960s, Dr. Pearl finally felt ready to work in medicine again and. And though anti-abortion activists, I just nightmare people like mm-hmm. anti-abortion activists lobbied hard to deny her a medical license in the United States because she'd already released her memoir. So of yeah. course she'd already said that she performed all of these abortions in order to save the lives of these women. Um, and she'd, you know, they say, were like,
2: we cannot have this.
1: Yeah, this is a baby killer. We can't have her working as a medical professional, like not taking into account at all the experience that she was Put having, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. But anyway, they failed. And she began working on the labor floor at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan in 1966. And she was the only woman in her department. Wow. She ultimately opened her own thriving practice on Park Avenue dedicated to helping women with infertility. She became an infertility expert. And many of the people that she helped were Holocaust survivors that she had actually known in the camps who had immigrated to New York oh my gosh can you imagine how weird that would be uh, be on the outside together yeah nobody else can fully understand what you've gone through. but I almost feel like that would
2: be harder it would it's be like hard how do you even yeah communicate You're in normal clothes. You're probably put some weight on. Like, it's just such a mind fuck. Yeah. I mean, and
1: everybody handles it differently, right? Like, obviously, she was extremely traumatized. She talked a lot about her trauma, um, especially when it came to the babies. Of course. But she also wore her tattoo as like a badge of honor. Like, she she wasn't one of those who wanted to cover it up. And there, of course, were people who didn't want to think about it, didn't want people looking at it, didn't want to talk about it, you know, and um, she wasn't that way. In 1978, during one of her lectures, she had learned that her daughter had survived the war, hidden away with a Protestant family who was unaware of her Jewish identity. Wow. So she got passed on to another family. Pearl immigrated to Israel to live with her daughter. So her daughter had immigrated to Israel with her son. And so... Um, Dr. Pearl went to Israel and got to be reunited with her daughter and her new grandson, grandson and also her sister, Rose, who was living in Israel as well. Oh,
0: my gosh. Yeah.
1: So she found I'll family. I'll see you in Jerusalem. Exactly. Exactly. She fulfilled the promise. I know. I know. In Israel, Pearl volunteered her medical skills in the gynecology clinics um, there at the medical center in Jerusalem, continuing to deliver babies until her death in 1988. Today, Dr. Pearl is often referred to as the Angel of Auschwitz for both her work with expectant mothers and hospital patients. At great personal risk, Dr. Pearl saved the lives of hundreds of women by providing them with a, as safe an abortion as she could. So she's
2: Dr. Pearl, a true hero a true legend oh my yeah. goodness so i did look i did google image that's okay i just wanted to get out i didn't want you to like i, d- I didn't want to spoil I know, no no we by going. all means by all means <laughs> i do recognize the photo I have not heard of the book i am definitely going to be adding that to my want to read list yeah i do think because she uh, in some of the articles i
1: read you know there are some of her descriptions of the camps and obviously just from what i've said in this story it is pretty graphic, pretty I harrowing. I feel
2: it's- really weird saying it, but I've, I've read a lot of it. Yeah. And I feel like, not that I'm desent- desensitized, it still makes me cry every time I read it, but I feel like I almost know what's coming. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, yeah. when you were saying, that, it's like I, I know what what I'm getting into yes. and I find the stories of resilience to be at the end of the day, the thing that like I get out of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the fascinating horrors and then turned into this like unbelievable survival story. Right. I mean, you know? again, and not to
1: just like keep it's just because I just reread it recently, but um that's what makes man's search for meaning so interesting, is because, you know, he's this psychologist who then discovered that like Freud had this whole psychology about like why we do what we do and Viktor Frankl is like no I think we do what we do because we're constantly searching for meaning in our lives yeah he discovered that being in the camps exactly because he saw firsthand the resiliency what you need to survive yeah and the resiliency of human beings yeah right and he saw firsthand the ways in which it makes us inhumane and the ways that it makes us so profoundly human
2: you know where it's yeah just like, it's, a, it's a great book I, yeah. I was telling keegan i was like yeah my therapist in my second treatment center told me to read it if that says anything about it they were like let's give you the will to live <laughs> yeah but i mean it, it is also
1: it's a holocaust story so it's it's, it's very hard. sad it's
2: very hard yeah. but it is it is such a it's a very moving, transformative read. Highly recommend it. It's very, very yeah. good. Yeah, and I would like—I really would like to too.
1: read yes, night—and I would like to read um, her memoir as well, just yeah. because it is such an interesting perspective. And, and I a think
2: different story. It's than a different is story told.
1: And I think with everything that's going on with reproductive rights in our country right now and in the world, having all the perspectives of why this is important, like why people should have control and autonomy, and You can't say across the board, abortion is always bad because of this, whatever, you know, because it's just like, it's not, it's, it's, these women wouldn't be alive if she hadn't been there to warn them and do this for them at great personal risk to herself, where she could have been very easily murdered for having helped them do this. Of course. But they wouldn't be around right now. Yeah. You know, if it weren't for her. So, like, And if it weren't for the ability for her to give them as safe an abortion as she could. Because a lot of articles were like, she provided safe abortions. And I'm like, she provided as safe an abortion as as she she possibly could. could, Yeah. Um, Because the circumstances were not great. Yeah. (laughs)
2: That didn't lead to a safe environment, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for telling me all about Dr. Poil Pearl. All right. If you have any suggestions, please let us know. Email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM us on our Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. If there are any feminist faves that you know of that you think we should talk about, please help us out. If you'd like to check out our merch, there will be a link in the show notes. If you want to donate to Keegan's lovely drive that she is doing, you can go to the link in our bio to donate little bags or different hygiene products. You can go to our Facebook group page to chat with the other listeners and go to the business page to rate and review us. And last but not least, if you haven't left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, what are you doing? Get over there, do that already, and make our day. All right, that's all we have for you today with all the being said. We encourage you to rage on.